but the process of attacking these complex problems is also going to be a fulfilling thing that helps develop your leaders as well. That would be the grand slam if we could close that loop. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, alongside Associate Dean Phil Powell. Here on the show, our mission is simple. We want to help organizations make better business decisions. So for all those who are joining us for the first time, we just want to welcome you to the Kelly family. And we're here for you. So if you have a faculty member you'd like to get a hold of to get some expert advice, if you have a question maybe you're wrestling with as a leader, or you simply want to nominate a guest for our show, send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-E-P-U-I.edu. We're here with Michael Huber, CEO of the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce and a proud Kelly alum. In fact, uh, Michael and I had the pleasure of being in a class where we talked about country analysis and, uh, but Michael, it's, it's great. It's great to talk today and, and, and to, to talk about all the great things you're doing here at the chamber. Thanks, Phil. It's a great honor. I remember vividly that class that I took in, uh, 2005. I forget, I forget the exact name of the course, but I remember it was profiling, uh, countries for international business ventures and looking at different, uh, economic and political factors. And it, it, you know, you don't, you know, it's been, that's been almost 15 years. So you don't remember every class necessarily, but I vividly remember your class. So it's a great honor to be here with you and Matt. Well, we, we really wanted to get you on the ROI podcast and you've been doing some great work driving and leading the discussion on how we brand a region. And, you know, it's sort of this interesting intersection of business school, you know, branding a, branding a product, but now you're focusing on a community of 2 million people. So I just want to start off and, and just talk about the visionary element of that. How do, you, how do you put that together in terms of a vision of what, how, you, how you get your arms around this concept of, of a region almost being a product? And then back into how you've used your business training and your experience, which has been very impressive, both in the public and private sector, to work back into to driving some of the great stuff that we, we're seeing here in Indianapolis. So I'll start with... We've got this great region of 2 million people, uh, the Indianapolis region. And we, and for your listeners, we usually think about the nine counties. You go just outside the nine counties and you've got Bloomington and West Lafayette and Columbus and communities like that. And eventually we would like to create a vision that stretches a little broader, but we, we, we don't want to, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves right now. There's so much opportunity to tell a story about the economy of that nine County region. And if you were, I would say, I'm, I'm thinking back to, uh, you know, Professor John Lee Andrews and uh, uh, I had Shelly Jane, I remember for marketing and really good marketing professors. And you start to think about what would the, what would the components of that brand be if you could brand uh, the Indianapolis region? You have a very uh, diverse R&D and STEM um, economy. So if you think about um, life sciences. Now, many cities around the country have life sciences economies, but we have a diversity within our life sciences economy, which includes pharma in Eli Lilly, which includes um, medical devices like Cook, which obviously has a, a big presence in Bloomington and in Indianapolis, uh, uh, Roche Diagnostics and companies like that. So there's a diversity within our life sciences economy um, tech. Now, every major city in America can say we've got a big tech economy. 
marketing tech, particularly in Indianapolis with the second biggest Salesforce office in the world. And then this family of companies that's emerged from the from Salesforce's uh, purchase of the, the um, company Exact Target several years ago. Advanced manufacturing, Cummins Engine, Rolls-Royce, Allison Transmission, just to name three. And there are a lot. Now, uh, advanced manufacturing is interesting because it's looking more and more like tech and automation is obviously disrupting, you know, our economy and the world's economy, but it's still a really exciting collection of companies there. And then just a couple more agriculture and ag tech is a highly underrated sector. A lot of that is a lot of the ag tech activity is clustered on the North part of our region with uh, formerly Dow AgriSciences. Now it's Corteva, Bex hybrids. It's, it's ag, but it's high tech. And then finally sports, if you add up motorsports and the the industries around uh uh indycar and hot rod racing on the west side of indianapolis and then the ncaa headquarters and the more than 70 sports governing bodies and i know i'm going on and on but all that is here in a metro of two million people uh it's a much more you know diverse cluster of industries than almost any other city in the united states of that size can can boast it's a more diverse set than nashville tennessee uh, which is a great city, as, as you know well, Phil. Um, the challenge is, who would know that, you know, outside our city? And there's a lack of a story that's getting out there that we've really discovered and that we hear about. Um, you find a lot of other cities are with without that without as diverse economies are doing a much better job telling the story and ultimately reaching people from other parts of the country and from other countries. So we've kind of we've kind of got our work cut out for us if we were going to. Um, kind of map out what the brand would look like. It would look something like the diversity of industries. The last thing I'll say, because I've said a lot, is there's a civic culture here in Indianapolis that is very easy to navigate. Now, some of that is because the the massive growth in Indianapolis has really just happened since the '60s and '70s. So it's not some like the it's not like these older cities where you've got many generations and people kind of set into their communities. Here, you'll find. I mean, you know, you're not from here. You, you and your wife, uh, Phil, are are not not from Indianapolis. I'm I'm from Southern Illinois, married to a Californian. Um, and you find, you know, thousands of stories about people who have come here and then you just get kind of pulled into the civic culture. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a very inviting, um, it's a very easy place to meet people, but that message isn't getting out either. You know, in fact, if you live on the East or West coast, it's not so much a negative perception of Indianapolis. It's more of a non-perception that we've got to get over. So one thing that's interesting, you know, as we're looking at many cities around the country is they're starting to gain their own identities. You know, you go out to the West Coast, obviously you got Silicon Valley. I mean, tech, technologically just powerhouses. You got, you know, places here in the Midwest, you know, like Ohio is wanting to become and like Columbus specifically is wanting to take some big steps in the tech field and, and Nashville, you know. So as you're starting to identify cities and as each city starting to gain its own unique story or identity. How would you start to portray or how are you boiling down to what Indianapolis identity is becoming? Yeah. So before I answer that, I'll start with some of the kind of the challenges as we look at what other cities have done. So this whole, this whole exercise of branding a place and branding a city is um, somewhat complex because the, the brands around the country that have stuck all the ones that I know of that have been successful have been organic. They have not been manufactured. They have not been, um, they have not been created in the conference room of a chamber who goes out and focus tests the, the brand, right? Um, and uh, so I'll tell a story about Nashville, Tennessee, because we're close with Nashville as an organization. We're set up very similarly. We've got 
uh, Chamber of Commerce and Regional Economic Development Function. Um, Ralph Schultz, who's the CEO of the Nashville Chamber, basically says, tells a story that, you know, music, especially country music, was a part of Nashville, you know, Nashville's identity for the latter half of the 20th century, for sure. But for get into the, the 80s and the 1990s, this is just according to Ralph, the, um, the mainstream of Nashville did not really embrace country music. You know, healthcare and healthcare tech and other sectors within Nashville didn't really embrace it. In fact, Nashville, Ralph from Nashville says, our, 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 um, our business community was embarrassed by our music. They thought it was unsophisticated music. And then in the 1990s, they basically say, this is how others see us. Let's broaden it. And as, as Music City. and But it's not just going to be about music. It's going to be about creative people, right? And I think they've done a pretty successful job, right? You look at you look at where they are in 2019, and you look at, they've got, they're very successful. You know, the, the metrics that we look at as, as Indie Chamber, we look at in-migration, you know, we look at high-wage job growth, we look at educational attainment, because you can't just grow your city on people moving there. You know, you need to do the right thing and help your own residents participate in that economy, but Nashville's done really, really well. But again, it was Music City. It's easy. It's easy to um, forget that it hasn't always been that way, you know. And it took some time for us, you know. I, this is something that we've been working very intensely on for the past year, um, but not, you know, not not um, not not a long, long time. We've known it was a problem for a long, long time. We haven't committed a lot of resources about it for a year. There'd, there'd be there'd be something about the diversity of opportunities across these core industries. There'd be something about the civic culture that would make its way in there. There would be language about your proximity to nature and beauty because this thing about mountains and oceans is really overrated. I mean, it is meaningful, and there's no question that some cities like Denver do a great job attracting people to because of their natural beauty. But if you actually if we could get people here to think differently about our access to to nature and beauty. Um, your your access to woods and water and state parks and beautiful topography, I would say, is really competitive. Um, we just don't really we just don't really think that way. And then the final thing that I would say is, I think we have to confront and figure out how we're going to treat auto racing because while it's hard to draw a direct comparison to Nashville or some of these other cities, we've had this racing history now for over a century. And there are some who say, let's just, let's, let's embrace it and perhaps broaden it, you know, and then maybe it's not just racing, maybe it's racing and the sporting culture, you know, we've worked hard to protect our status as the amateur sports capital of the world, and we can really back that up. Maybe we need to take those assets, you know, those recognizable assets, similar to what uh, Nashville did with music and broaden that. Michael, you know, it's great to sit at a podcast and talk about the Kelly School in Nashville and Indianapolis, because that's right in my world. You know, our listeners may know I'm a native. Um, and I was in Nashville before this transformation. And I was listening to you talk. Um, the, the, the real catalyst was realizing that they could broaden, just sort of run with, run with that Music City thing and broaden it in a way that's going to be more inclusive in the way it's defined. But there was catalyzing leadership that, you know, you run in, you run into these city leaders and, and you've worked, you have the pleasure of working with them and being exposed to them or, 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 or even, you know, I know you worked with Ms. Daniels. Uh, you know, you run into these visionary leaders that see things that nobody else does that make these big investments when everybody else is saying they're crazy. When you look at what's needed from the leadership perspective, what just talk about that. Yeah. So 
um, there, there, there are three, three themes that we are talking about all the time within our organization and with it, with other civic leaders. Um, and I'll just, uh, it's, and they come up all the time. And this, this is really the, the, these three things have really just coalesced, you know, at the latter half of the, of the, this year, 2019, uh, we got to tell the story. Um, we need to grow our economy in a much more inclusive way and we have to unite the region because, um, uh, individual municipalities don't, you know, it's, it's regions that really drive the, and cooperation between urban and suburban. Um, and you mentioned Accelerate Indy, which is the econ- regional economic development strategy of the Indy Chamber, but it's always a team sport. So there are a lot of other organizations that we rely on who, who um, have worked with us on this Accelerate Indy strategy. And the big shift in the, in the last few years and the big challenge to leadership has been Economic development is almost entirely about human capital now, and it's almost entirely about people. And some of your younger listeners may be listening, saying, "Well, of course, yeah, we've known that." And I'm saying, it, it w- there was not that consensus ten years ago. Definitely not twenty years ago. Um, uh, there was there was a lot of the belief was that, well, if you just if you create a business friendly climate and you help your industries grow, that job growth is just going to happen and ju- just going to happen organically. And what we're seeing is the more mobile people are in 2019 and, and the more choices they have about where they can live and, and, and how they can live that your economic development strategy, like, like creating an environment for business is just one component. People are thinking much differently about connected places, about modes of transportation, which is why expanding mass transit in our city has been really, really, really important. And, I'm biased. I believe the way that we are doing it through bus rapid transit, which is at a fraction of the cost of light rail, is probably a really smart way to go. Right now, we've just seen the opening of the red line. Um, we're going to see the opening of the the purple line and blue line in the next two years. Um, those transit conversations were not um, aligned with economic development 20 years ago. They just weren't. Transit was seen as, well, it's a nice amenity that you probably need to provide. It's a social service that you need to provide. But now we're thinking about it much more as how do we get people to work and how do we get companies like Lilly bought in and our healthcare institutions into how we're getting people to work. Um, so human capital has been the biggest change and making sure that we're making those those uh, core investments to be able, we're really thinking more about what attracts people here, what compels them to stay here after they get a Kelly degree. And, and, and it's, it's much more than just the job base, which makes our, which makes our jobs much more complicated. Now, the exciting thing is um, it can also be an incredibly creative environment to be in because one of these big swings that we're thinking a lot about is the White River. And the White River will be, and this is just one example, the White River will be um, environmentally clean. Um, it will be much more aesthetically beautiful when the, um, all the sewage is redirected into these multi-billion dollar deep rock tunnels that we've been building as a city for years. And so one of these one of these big swing possibilities, and the White River runs right through the the um, you know IUPUI campus in downtown Indianapolis and northeast and up connects the suburbs is, wow, it's going to be much more inviting. It's going to be safer for people to be swimming and canoeing and all those things. And um, let's let's think about that entire corridor. You know, let's think about transforming that entire corridor. And those are the types of conversations that are happening now connected to economic development that just weren't happening, you know, a decade ago. You mentioned uh, economic mobility, you know, you know, and I've seen the same statistics that you have and a lot of our listeners have. We've had this city 
Indianapolis has really come of age, and I really call it an economic renaissance. Uh, it's led to this diversity and blossoming that we've seen. But at the same time, and this is happening in other cities, but there's, you know, you know that study that came out, I think it was uh, the Sagamore Institute, you know, where poverty rate doubled between 2000 and 2015. It was 80,000 more people in, in poverty. And, uh, you know, and nationwide income inequality is the highest it's been since the 1910s. And this is really something we've got to grapple with. And this is something that is part of higher ed. You know, everybody, everybody in higher education is crying because there's going to be fewer high school grads. Well, my counter is it's a growth market. You read the real statistics on, on what the region needs, there's going to be an 8% increase in the demand for bachelor degreed workers. But the only way that we can achieve that is with more first-generation students going to college, but more importantly, graduating from college with those skills that are needed. And that's really informing, again, I mentioned this undergraduate program redesigned at the Kelly School. And I know the Chamber's been up front working with the mayor's office on trying to make economic mobility a competitive asset. We can make economic mobility as competitive an asset as some of these other things. If we do that, oh my, that's sort of like the that's sort of like the brass ring of this whole effort. Talk about what the chamber's doing and and how do you from where you sit, how do you how do you view us getting to economic mobility as a competitive asset, yeah. and can we get there? Because a lot of a lot of skeptics are going to say, "Oh, you're being too idealistic, Phil." So, and in answering that, I'm going to go back to the brand question, and I don't want to sound like I'm a, a so here's 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 where we want to arrive on the brand question. If we were doing this like every other city, we'd try to devise some kind of a clever slogan and we'd put that on billboards and then we'd advertise in New York and California. And um, that is that is likely what we will not do. You know, Now, language is really important. What we don't have yet, I'll just be honest, is we don't have this shared language that is something that we're... And, and actually, this probably be a fascinating Kelly project, you know, would be to sort of test and, and maybe maybe uh, that we should talk about that, you know, after the podcast is what sort of testing these 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 this language that's emerging because shared language is really important. However, a lot of places will do it, will, will market themselves and only aim it at people from other parts of the country and internationally. And they're not thinking about the most sustainable kind of economic growth, which you're talking about, which is taking your own resident base and helping them achieve greater levels of self-sufficiency in education. And the the big aha for us, um, let me back up, in, in starting in 2017, we got to work on this great project with the Brookings Institution from Washington, D.C., and in partnership throughout 2017 with our, our counterparts in Nashville, Tennessee, and San Diego, California. And it was a, pro, a new program in the Brookings Institution called Inclusive Economic Growth. And what, what Brookings was trying to set out to discover was one thing that Indy and Nashville and San Diego all have in common is they got pretty diverse economies. They got, um, you know, uh, uh, most of the numbers trending in the right direction in terms of job growth, population growth, uh, in migration. Um, numbers that are moving in the wrong direction for virtually all American cities are poverty and crime and those kinds of issues, and Indianapolis is no exception. While we've, while it's a great place to live, Indianapolis region is a great place to live if you've got a college education or some level of, of you know, technical training. If you are born in poverty in Indianapolis, your chances of getting out of poverty are worse now than they've been in almost 40 years, which is, is really alarming. Now, this is a pro, this is an American problem. It's not just an Indianapolis problem, but it's a, but it, it particularly acute in Indianapolis. Well, you go through our, you know, the, the um, economic analysis and why. Well, relating to Indianapolis, our city 
and our region has done so well on manufacturing for so long that you can trace a lot of the growth in poverty to parts of the city where you had a huge automotive plant close. We've had GM, Ford, Navistar, uh, plants like this, which employed thousands of people, you know, in, in as recently as the 1970s close. And then you see the impacts on neighbors. So what that means is tens of thousands of our neighbors who grew up with, um, you know, family members who did really well in automotive and, and, and an expectation that that would be their life. That is no longer their life, right? The, the, they, they need a totally different set of skills now. One of the huge ahas going through, through this uh, Brookings project has been not only is it, um, I think it's the right thing to do by focusing many more resources on people who live in your own community and making sure, as you said, Phil, that they have the tools to improve their life. It's also a much more cost-effective strategy, right? If you could start to move the needle 1%, 5%, 10% on um, academic achievement and, uh, you know, uh, college attainment, it starts to have a major impact on your um, on your, your city and on your region. The hardest part that I'll say is, um, and I'm not saying this as an expert, I'm saying this as really a pra- kind of a practitioner, layperson, is to um, a, a lot of times what people who are born in poverty lack is that social capital. You know, it's, it's stuff that's hard to measure. It's, it's you know, I'm, I'm, I'm born in poverty and I didn't have the... Um, you know, my, my, my mom or my dad or another adult sort of model the, those, those behaviors for me. And so I'm set as a young person, I'm set even farther behind the, uh, behind the eight ball. And that is, that is a huge question now. And it's something that business organizations are wrestling with. And these are business organizations like chambers. There was one time, you know, a lot of chambers used to exist to promote the interest of the business community. Now, even short-term, you know, interest, the business community politically, most of the business organizations in other cities that I respect are all wrestling with this problem and doing more and more and more and more in education and in workforce because they know it's not only the right thing to do, their city is going to be much worse, their business climate is going to be much worse if we allow a growing percentage of our residents to not have a chance to participate in the economy. So the way, I'm, I'm, way I look at it, Mike, um, as, I, as I think about this, both as an as a associate dean and a higher education leader, but also as an economist, is that, and it struck me at the Minneapolis Leadership Exchange when we went, went up there, and, and I'll, I'll circle back in a minute, but, but remember when Mitch Daniels got in the governor's office and he sold the, the toll road, and I think it was like a 40- or 50-year contract, and you know we think about bridges and infrastructure in these 10, 20, 30, 40-year spans, and that's just normal, right? But when it comes to the question of human capital, and you talk about poverty, all of a sudden people freeze up and they feel like I gotta solve it now, right? And really, I've thought about what if, you know, if we frame the challenge as really a generation, you know, you mentioned that our biggest pockets of poverty in the in the region come from these plant closings that occurred some of them a generation ago. Yes. Right? That's right. And so what what's your response to the following? Uh, framing this uh, challenge as a generational challenge, which gives us a little bit more runway to, to try to really address this. And then it comes back to what, it goes back to, to an insight I had, the Minneapolis Leadership Exchange, and that is that really when you at, if you ask somebody, what is the best way to reverse poverty? What, what, what type of anti-poverty program has the highest rate of investment in terms of bringing people out of poverty? What did we learn? It was early childhood education. Right. And, and right. if you think of that, 
And that's much more effective yep. than giving somebody who's in their mid-adult life just money. Now, you have to do that. But in terms of long-term rates of return of, yep. of lifting people out, that's where we see it. So how does when, – when I, when I frame it like that, when we frame it as a generational problem, what, what kind of thoughts and, 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 and insights do you have there? So the stuff is so complex, and I think what, I, what I'm always searching for, and you know, you know our organization very well, Phil, is – what, what role can like the Indy Chamber play where we can actually move the needle, um, but that also is we're not trying to boil the ocean. You know, we're going to be very specific in our goal. And um, one of the things that we try to do, in addition to the advocacy and lobbying that we do, we also run the, obviously, the, um, the Regional Economic Development Corp. So like, you know, when Amazon HQ2 did their bid, that was all funded here, you know, within, at, the, at the Indy Chamber by the private sector. That, that project was... was in a way, kind of ridiculous, but we knew we had to compete. I think we competed hard for it, and it is what it is. But I, I actually think the more meaningful work is what you're talking about. So what what happens is you get this dynamic of stagnation um, when communities are trying to address these problems. You definitely get stagnation among the politicians, so set that aside for a second. Then you get... Um, impatient people, often from business, who just want something to happen right now, and then you get people in the social services community who are jaded because they're, they've been spending their whole lives trying to combat these problems. They think that don't, nobody cares. And then maybe business people show up from time to time and order the social services people around and try to tell them what to do. And that, that, creates, that, that doesn't work either. And yet it's, it's in bridging those gaps where I think business people can be really, really skilled. You know, Because if you've been successful in business, you're pragmatic. If you, I'm, I'm not just saying if you have a Kelly MBA, you're, you're multifunctional, you know, you're not going to apply one lens. I think that's the biggest thing I got from my Kelly MBA is you start to see patterns across different industries and you're not trying to apply the exact same skill set to the problem. And so literally it's, it's trying to build an army of people who can play, you know what I mean? An army of people who can get engaged in a meaningful way with their time and maybe are going to take their talent from business and apply it to this education challenge, maybe take their talent from business and apply it to this human services challenge. And you're trying to just grow that community and grow it and grow it and grow it and make sure that they're talking to each other. Um, now, that's a, that's a more kind of soft, you know, it's a little, little harder to quantify and harder to measure. But I can't emphasize enough, once you get, once, once you get into a community and you get people, well-intentioned people that want to solve these problems, even then there are gaps in their attentions. And I, and I, I'm, you know, I, I believe, you know, people who have been successful in business when they get engaged are have, have one of the best skill sets to start to get both sides to talk to each other. And all this becomes a part of the story of a region. I mean, you can't, yep. you can't have, you know, just the good and talk about the good. I mean, you, you do have to come to terms with, you know, human capital concerns, poverty concerns within residents, you know, so one of the things you said that that was really interesting was, you know, trying to tell the story and when you craft the identity of a region, it doesn't come from a boardroom of people just throwing stuff at a whiteboard and finding that catchphrase that fits. I mean, it does come, you said like an organic, it comes from like an organic source of listening. And I think that is something that transcends even into no matter what your organization is, whether you're, you know, you are sitting in government, whether you are sitting um, in, in an organization, you do have that uh, story or that identity that you embody. So as, as a leader, how do you start to, you know, 
listen in onto what that narrative is instead of just jumping the gun and just saying, I already have this vision and this is what it is going to be. Yeah, well, so some of it's, it's, it's hard to answer that without kind of thinking about it personally. Um, and um, I'll just, you know, my own journey, it's like, I've, you know, I worked for a couple of Republican elected officials, but I co-chaired our Democrat mayor's transition. I'm close to him too. And so some of it has been um, conditioning myself and then by extension, this kind of army of volunteers that we're trying to create to try to think really independently and don't fall victim to sort of the political narrative, especially the national political narrative. I will say the national political narrative, while it's really toxic and I can't even, I I can't even watch CNN or Fox or any, I just don't, I mean, I'll, I'll try to read the headlines for the most important stuff, but I can't, I can't stay engaged with it very long. And I think a lot of people, I think there are a lot of people in America right now who, who feel the way I do. It's almost led to more of a hunger to get involved with work that is substantive at the local level. So that honestly, the toxicity of the national dialogue has actually motivated more people on the ground in the last few years. And so we need to take advantage of that window. People are hungrier for authentic conversations. I think a a third thing for me is going to those places like, like every time, every time I think the chamber, everything, every time I think, wow, you know, we're, we're, we're working pretty close to the edge here. You know what I mean? We're doing a lot in the trenches with Indianapolis public schools. And that's been a fascinating project. And then I'll meet somebody from a community, even if even a community, really another a neighboring neighborhood. And I live in Indianapolis and I'll think, okay, I am nowhere near close to the edge. You know what I mean? Like Dennis Bland at Center for Leadership Development that you're probably familiar with. They just got eleven and a half million dollars from the Lilly Endowment to extend their programs. They are reaching the kids from the toughest of life circumstances with some of the best results in terms of college attainment. I mean, it's just incredible. So I, I'm trying to trying to consistently get outside my comfort zone. Our music initiative called Music Strategy, which um, IEPUI collaborates on that as well, has been great in terms of making inroads, especially within the hip-hop community, to individuals who have a, uh, a ton of talent and a ton to offer, but who probably wouldn't have been caught dead at an indie chamber event or economic development event too. So it's also, I would say, pushing myself and pushing those of us in our organization to reach out farther um, in those conversations. Um, and, and I think um, through those, th- those kinds of challenging conversations, and sometimes they get a little bit tense and people are really challenging your worldview, especially conversations around racial equity and around economic attainment. Um, those are the conversations you really grow from. And I think to kind of boiling it down, I mean, it... it forces you to open up your eyes outside of your own worldview, out of your own perspective. And you have to accept either, either good or bad, kind of what's going to come at you when you do ask some of those questions. And, and also resist the fear, um, putting yourself in a situation where people are, um, challenging your, in some cases, closely held views, because in today's society, it's way too easy for us to retreat. Wait, wait, wait for, for us to retreat into our neighborhood, retreat to our phone where we're only talking to people who share our views and things like that. But I think you started with the bigger question about the brand. And if I could wave a magic wand, it would be um, taking that Hoosier hospitality and uh, which, which is, which is real um, and broadening that to capture in a bottle, this very engaged civic culture that we have here uh, people who really care about the community and trying to bottle up, hey, you're, if if you come here, you're going to have a chance to get your hands dirty 
and really impact your city and, and be a part of it. That was actually in, I think this is part of what we released. That was in the Amazon bid, actually. We spent a lot of time saying, here, hey, Amazon, here are our problems. Here are our challenges. Because we thought, okay, they can Google our problems. You know, we're not going to hide that. Here are our problems. And these will be our expectations if, you're, if, we're, if you do select our city. This is how we will expect you to engage and help us work on those problems. And that's a shift. That's, that's kind of a new thing of being that explicit when we are courting uh, companies and industry. And as we get ready to wrap up, you know, with organizations, I mean, it, the companies, whether they're private or public, within a region, it's all about that community and working together. What Even if you are competing with, you know, rivals in the same region, in order to get the identity and the story of a city, you still there still has to be some of that, I, like you said, that common language, those yep. those cultures that lock us together. So in in doing that, how can organizations and how can organizational leaders, especially in Indianapolis, work along with the chamber, work with you guys to continue to tell Indy's story to, to make it grow or how, to, or even just yeah. to find that common language? The, you know, the different ways you can get involved in the channels and the programs, I think are all pretty well documented on our site. So I'll resist the temptation to sort of give the elevator pitch for the Indy chamber. You know, that's all you can find it on our site on indychamber.com. I think the, I think the hook is, um, this is why I struggle a little bit with like um, kind of like corporate social responsibility in terms like that. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm opposed, but um, I'm more compelled by businesses. Uh, Cook is a company by the things they invest in, in, in Bloomington and Indianapolis, where it's, it's not, this is not, this is not charity work and it's not a good thing to do. Like spending the, um, time and money and resources to move the needle on education and poverty in our city is going to be a good business strategy. Now, maybe it's not, maybe it's, maybe it doesn't have an ROI for, you know, for a company's next quarterly earnings report, but where we, we only have a chance to grow businesses engagement in solving these highly complex problems, if we can get more and more companies saying, I'm not doing this for charity. This is our own. This is life and death. This is, my, this is our own self-interest of our business. This is our own ROI. And not just in solving the problem, but the experiences that I'm going to create, it might be for vice presidents at my company, it might be for emerging leaders in my company, by getting them exposure to these complex problems and then other people who are doing really meaningful work is also going to benefit my business. Today, we've built an engagement model through the chamber that could probably accommodate a couple thousand leaders. We need to grow that. We need to be able to, you know, through our networks and be able to be able to uh, accommodate 5,000, 10,000, you know, that, the, you know, that, that number of people, if we're talking about change on that scale, but really inspiring business that this isn't, this isn't just charity and, and corporate social responsibility. This is, this is the future of your business. But the process of attacking these complex problems is also going to be a fulfilling thing that helps develop your leaders as well. That would be the grand slam if we could close that loop. Michael Huber, just want to thank you so much for being our guest on the ROI podcast. Thank you. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, alongside Associate Dean Phil Powell. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.